You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When I was studying music in undergrad, one of the classes that I had to take as a vocal performance major was choral arts. Those of us who were training in vocal performance hated choral arts because we were training to be solo stars, not thrown in with a bunch of people warbling, right? (laughs) And so, you know, in choral arts, we had this one uh, rehearsal where we were all gathered together, big choir, and we were singing, and the, the director of the choir stopped us in the middle of the song And he said, look, I know that each of you has a lovely voice, but this is choir. This is choir. It's not about the individual. It's about the collective. You have to take my direction. And the sooner that you accept that this is a choir, the more beautiful we will sound. And then he tapped his baton on the music stand. And he got us going again. And and once we finished the piece, he said, now that sounded great because you were actually listening to each other and blending your voices. As he puts the finishing touches on this letter, the Apostle James leaves his people with a word concerning the type of community that they are meant to be. After covering major themes of the Christian life, James wraps up his letter by essentially saying, this is not just about the individual, it's about the collective. You have to take my direction. And the sooner that you accept that the Christian life is a community project, the more beautiful our life together will be and the more profound our witness to the world. The apostle wants us to actually listen to one another, to blend our lives together in faith and hope and love. So today, as we bring our time in the book of James to a close, we're going to talk about the community of faith. And we're going to see that the community of faith is a praying community and a restorative community. Those are our two points for this morning. The community of faith is a praying community And a restorative community. So let's look at our first point where we see that the community of faith is a praying community. And I'm drawing this point from verses 13 through 18 in the text. Now, we've been on quite a journey with James, haven't we? I know I have. (laughs) The apostle has taught us about the difference between a profession of faith and the actual possession of faith calling us to beware of self-deception. He's taught us about God's purposes in our trials and how testing reveals what's in our hearts. He has taught us about the centrality of wisdom in the Christian life so that we might learn how to faithfully improvise in different situations to play jazz in our lives as Christians when there's no sheet music to follow. He has encouraged us to focus on the coming reversal for the rich and the poor and and to focus on the consistent challenge 
of getting beneath the surface of our lives to do the necessary inner work. He's called us to seek emotional wholeness, spiritual wholeness, and social wholeness through the word of God so that we don't find ourselves holding an unjust, worthless religion that neglects the vulnerable. He's called us to an impartial faith that pushes past the appearances to deal in the whole truth concerning our neighbors so that we can live in solidarity with them like Jesus lives in solidarity with us. He has stressed the crucial importance of hearing and doing the word, warning us of the fact that if our faith is no good to our neighbors, it will be no good to us either. James has impressed upon us the importance of speech ethics, challenging us to speak as people who will one day have to give account for every word we have uttered. He gave us the pathology of conflict, helping us to see how our selfish desires hurt our relationships and how his sufficient grace provides a pathway to healthy and vibrant relationships. James called us to submit our future plans to the will of God rather than arrogantly presuming to set our course based upon profit, pragmatism, comforts, and false narratives. The apostle gave us a hard word of warning concerning our relationship to wealth, moving us away from selfish hoarding and fraud and luxurious self-indulgence toward justice, mercy, and generosity. James has urged us to be patient, remembering that though we belong to a waiting community, God's plans and God's Son are always worth the wait. And here in our final paragraph of this letter, James ends this challenging book with a fitting conclusion. How do you close such a hard-hitting, straightforward, no-nonsense letter like the book of James? Prayer. He's like, look, I know I lit y'all up. Y'all just go ahead and pray about it. <laughs> he closes with prayer. In this conclusion, James' very clear, very straightforward message is this. In every circumstance of life, Christians are to commune with God and one another through prayer. That's the straightforward, clear message of this passage. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what your situation, Christians are to commune with God and with one another through prayer. Take a look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. James starts off with this exhortation, with this call to pray in times of suffering because he knows how prone we are in times of suffering to be angry, to fall into self-pity, to isolate ourselves, to give in to complaining and blaming when we suffer difficult times. So he gives the alternative embraced by true faith, prayer. This is what true faith sounds like in times of suffering. Lord, I never thought I'd have to live with chronic illness, but I'm turning to you for strength. 
Lord, I never thought I'd find myself in such financial difficulties in this stage of my life, but I'm turning to you for patience and provision. Lord, I never imagined that marriage would be so difficult, but I'm turning to you for humility and a gracious heart so I can forgive quickly and love deeply. Lord, I never imagined that I would experience such disappointment and heartbreak at the hands of other Christians, but I'm turning to you for wisdom and perspective so that I can love the church like Jesus loves the church. Lord, I never imagined that I would suffer through constant anxiety and depression, but I'm asking you to help me to get stability and to anchor my hope in Christ. James is saying that in every hard trial, in every experience of suffering, true faith turns to the Lord to commune with him in prayer. Where there is true love, real trust, and healthy relationship, life is shared in all of its ups and downs, right? We do this with our friends. Who could you say is close to you that doesn't know when you're at your low points? And who's not celebrating with you when you're at your high points? In a similar way, James is saying the Lord wants to be in communion with you in the highs and in the lows. In times where you are confident and in times where you're confused. The Lord longs to commune with you. And he calls us to that kind of communion. But he continues in verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. If suffering tends to lead us toward anger and bitterness and self-pity, James knows that happy times and good days can often lead us to simply forget God. To forget God as the gracious giver of all of those gifts. So he calls us to sing praise, which you can understand as melodic prayer or musical prayer. And this doesn't require very much imagination, y'all. Just some doxological awareness. One of the reasons why Sunday morning worship and many churches is so emotionally stunted is because we mindlessly sing songs in worship without running the details of our lives through the lyrics to personalize them. And we don't really imagine that the Lord who did all this good to us and bestowed all these blessings is actually present in our midst. When we sing, great is thy faithfulness, y'all, we're not just singing about an abstraction called divine faithfulness. We're supposed to be recalling the specific, concrete expressions of God's faithfulness in our lives and in our community so that we can sing his praise with vitality, sincerity, and joy. It's a simple acknowledgement that there is no random, impersonal good in your life. Every good thing, every favorable circumstance, every pleasant experience is a gift of love from your faithful father. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. What mercies specifically have you seen? What mercies have you seen in your life as a result of the Lord's kindness to you? All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. What are the needs of yours that the Lord has met 
time and again without fail. That's what you bring into worship. Recall your physical needs met by a faithful God. Recall your redemptive needs met by a redeeming God. And sing with all your heart to the one who loves you so. This takes practice. But imagine where you'd be without him. When we're singing these songs about our great redemption. Like, like the only way you can stand there all stoic and emotionally bottled up is if you're not doing that inner work to connect those songs to your own life experience. What have you seen him do? How has he shown up in your life? Imagine your life if it were not covered, filled, and overflowing with the grace of God. Don't tell yourself that some people are just more emotional in worship than others. Don't reduce it to personality differences. It's more accurate to say that some people are more acutely aware of all the Lord has done for them. They're more acutely aware of his presence, and as a result, they're more grateful in the moment and more expressive in their praise. If you are more expressive and joyful in the unexpected kindness of a friend than you are at the unwarranted, unmitigated kindness of the Lord toward you, you need to go back and seek sanctification in your prayer life and in your worship life. Don't think of your prayer life and your worship life as a static thing that just is the way that it is. And you're always going to be a hands-in-the-pocket, kind of just looking bored kind of worshiper. No, this is a point of sanctification. You need the Spirit to set you free to praise Him with all your heart. And remember, worship is witness. I want someone who walks through these doors, who has never even heard of the name Jesus, who doesn't know why they're wandering through the doors of a church, to come in here to look around and say, something real must have happened for these people to be responding like this. This, this, I, this demands my attention somehow. He's obviously something real, something profound to these people. Maybe I should explore it. This is how many people in the early church actually came to faith. They were invited in and they saw the sincere heart-connected worship of God's people. Jesus said that if we don't praise him, the very stones will cry out. And I don't know about you, but I don't want no stone crying out for me. He's been too good. He's been too faithful. He has never failed me. He's worthy. James commands that Christians pray throughout the whole spectrum of emotions, whether low or high, at the bottom or the top, in the pits or at the pinnacle, it's a good time to commune with the Lord in prayer. In this way, neither the happy things nor the sad things of life will take us away from God. Those are two different pathways away from the Lord. Sometimes hard times lead people away from the Lord. And sometimes good times lead people away from the Lord. But James is saying, no matter what the times, let them lead you to the fountain 
of those good things. And to the source who can sustain you through the hard things. I like the way that John Calvin put it when he said, There is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. Or as another old school cat put it, By prayer we are to hallow every, pre- hallow every pleasure and sanctify every pain. Through prayer we are to hallow every pleasure, and to sanctify every pain. James then adds another layer in verse 14. Take a look. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, there are lots of technical issues to work through in this text. But I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds here. What you need to know is that when you are facing serious illness or serious sickness, James is telling you to call on the elders to come and pray for you. It's that simple. To call on the elders... To come and pray over you. This is one of the most significant aspects of our ministry as elders and leaders in the church. To pray with and for God's people. Now the good news is that we regularly pray through our membership roster. But James is talking about these times where someone is so debilitated through illness or injury that they need a, a, a particular attention in prayer. It's as if the text is suggesting that that person cannot make it to the elders, so they have to call for the elders to come to them. The idea of praying over them suggests that they are down sick. They're horizontal. So we are to call on the elders to pray over us as God's people. So I'm encouraging you to call on our faithful, dedicated elders when you come into times of serious sickness or illness. In verse 16, James lays the final layer on prayer. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. After calling us to personal prayer, And then inviting us to call on the elders to have them pray over us. James then broadens it to the entire Christian community. That we would be a praying community. He wants us to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. Prayer is not just a specific ministry of the elders. It is to be the everyday rhythm of God's whole community. And this is why the Daily Prayer Project exists. We know that it's challenging to pray consistently and richly. We know that it's easy to become distracted. We know that it's easy to mean well and do poorly. The Daily Prayer Project is meant to be a heuristic, a a guide, an aid in your prayer life. And remember, prayer is not measured in length. It's measured in weight. And it's much better to have short, consistent prayer life than to have occasional 
binge prayer life. It's like, it's like eating, you know? It's like it's no good to say, well, I'm going to eat one big meal a week, right? Like that ain't going to cut it. But if you eat a little bit throughout each day, that'll keep you alive. Think of prayer. It doesn't always have to be spoken out loud. Think of prayer as the undercurrent of your whole life where you're constantly in dialogue with the Lord. You're referencing his will. You're seeking his wisdom. Even in those snap moments, you see someone coming, you know you're about to have a conversation. You're not as sure what to do with. Lord, would you give me grace right now? Lord, wisdom, please. Thank you, Lord. Hey, how you doing? Right? Like, that's, that's how accessible he is. When it talks, like, like. There are times to get down on your knees. Your bodily, your embodiment in prayer actually matters. On your knees, prostrate on your face. What you need for prayer is a quiet time, a quiet place, and a quiet heart. That's what you need. And you bring that into prayer and you commune with your God. The whole community is meant to have this as our everyday rhythm. So this is an easy application of the verse. Take up the DPP. Yeah, you know me, right? Like, you down with DPP? All right. Praise God. All right. I wasn't always a Christian. <laughs> it's a simple way of trying to organize and structure your life before God, okay? Take up the DPP. And don't you just love, check out the text, don't you just love the encouragement that James offers when he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power when it is working. Now here's the deal. Whether James is referring to those who are righteous by faith in Christ or an additional aspect of righteousness in our behavior, like we're living into our profession. The point is this, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Mark that, great power. I don't know about y'all, but the Whitfield family can testify to the great power of prayer. When the doctors didn't have answers, when medical insurance wouldn't cover us, when one affliction after another was crashing on our heads, when we were helpless and desperate, it was the prayer power of the saints that carried us through. We would have given up if it weren't for the prayer power of the saints. We would have given in to the despair if it weren't for the prayer power of the saints. We would have become hopeless. We would have lost our minds but the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And we had the righteous saints praying for us through our time of trial. The prayers of the righteous brought us power to persevere, power to resist the devil's schemes, power to see our lives in light of glory, power to say, though he slays me, yet will I trust him. And now power to bear witness to his many mercies. Prayer changes things because prayer is powerful. We could run all through the scriptures to see all of the evidence of prayer's power. Prayer kept 
the Hebrew boys in the fire without being burned. Their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. Prayer shut the mouths of the lions in the den so that Daniel rested on them like a pillow. Prayer opened up the Red Sea so that Israel could walk across on dry ground. Prayer changes things. That is not Christianese. That's gospel truth. This life of prayer is something that James personally lived out. And that's why he can commend it with such vigor. James, we said, had a street name. He was James the Just. But James also had another handle. He had another street name. He was also known as Camel Knees on the Street. Camel Knees. The ancient church historian Eusebius, one of the first church historians that we have in the history of the church, Eusebius reported concerning James that, quote, his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people. Let me give you context for that. James was going into the temple to pray for his fellow kinsmen according to the flesh. And he did that so regularly, so constantly, that his knees developed calluses from the fervency of his prayer life and the constancy of it. They would eventually throw James from the top of the temple and he would be martyred. But before he did, he was prayed up in that temple. Camel knees. Just as a laborer's hands testify to his occupation through the calluses, or a runner's feet to his training, James's callous knees testified to a life of prayer. So we ought to listen to what he says. Not just because he was the Lord's earthly brother, not just because he was an apostle who actually was used to write scripture, but because he is a fellow sojourner who knew his way around the prayer closet. And he could commend this life of prayer to us because he saw the power of prayer in his own life. He witnessed thousands of people coming to faith on a single day at the preaching of the word without fancy illustrations without lights and fog machines, without a Nord Stage 3 keyboard and a, and, a, and a drum set and all the gear we got up here. James saw what prayer can do. And the question is, will you see what prayer can do by putting it to action? Or will you be an outside observer of what prayer can do? We want you to have personal experience. James calls God's people to be a praying community. More than all, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this because this room is filled with extraordinary people. Extraordinary gifts. Extraordinary intellectual capacities. I, I, I tell people all the time, it's one of my great privileges. One of the most humbling things I get to do is pastor some of my heroes. Because you're on the front lines. There, you, you, I, I think the world of you. I think so highly of you, but I want you to hear me. 
more than all of our scheming and dreaming and plotting and planning, we are to be praying. Because as Oswald Chambers said it, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer lays hold of God's power when we run out of our puny little power. Prayer lays hold of God's provision when we're running dry. Prayer lays hold of God's mercies and God's grace. We see this in the life of Jesus, don't we? Now let's turn to the gospel. Where is the good news in this passage? The good news comes in this consideration. Do you realize that we are saved as much by the prayers of Jesus as by the cross of Jesus? Do you realize that? We are saved as much by the prayers of Jesus as we are by the cross of Jesus. If Jesus had not been a man of prayer, then he could not have become the man of sorrows who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Without prayer, he could not have lived the perfectly righteous life that he credited to us, and he wouldn't have been a perfect sacrifice for our sins, nor a faithful high priest. Remember his prayers in Gethsemane. And even up till the point that he took his last breath, Jesus was praying. He prayed on the cross when he had every reason to curse those fools. He had every reason to be like, you know what? Pop, I'm popping out like transfiguration, blast. He had every right to do that. And he had every bit of power to do that. But what did he do? He prayed. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That was the last thing he said. And in between those two, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of all the people that deserve to be forsaken, why have you forsaken me? His whole time on the cross was one long prayer. And the last words that Jesus spoke before he went to the depths was into your hands. I commit my spirit. Jesus showed us the way. And if Jesus felt such a need to pray, if the Son of God felt such a need to commune with the Father, such a longing to live in communion with his Father, then we should as well. We should all the more feel our need of our God. James calls us to be a community that not only prays to our Savior, but prays like our Savior regularly. Isn't that amazing how often Jesus would just disappear? Go pray. It'd be like, Jesus, <laughs> one of my favorite passages in the gospel is like, the, the disciples come to Jesus, like, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. He's like, <laughs> you know that meme? He just goes like this and disappears. Like, he just went like, he just dropped the deuce on him and rolled to go pray. Obviously, there was something really pressing about prayer. And we need to feel that urgency. I don't want us 
to ever, ever underestimate this means of grace. Prayer, the word, the sacraments, and prayer are the means of grace. They are the channels by which we experience and receive the Lord's grace. Now, here's the thing about means. They're channels. They're like a faucet. You could turn it on a lot or a little. That's up to you. Will you blast that faucet of grace through prayer? Do you need grace? Do you need a lot of grace? Do you need major league grace? Me too. That means we ought to have some major league prayers, some consistency in our communion with the Lord and with one another. It is only by prayer that we will enter into the true faith and wholeness that the apostles been describing to us throughout this whole book. It's only through that prayer and communion. At the root of prayer is a true sense of your deep and extensive need, along with a true sense of your God. Study both and you will grow in prayer. If you are not finding that your immediate reflex is to pray, the answer is simple. You don't think you need it. You think you got it under control. You think you got it handled. When you do pray, you pray for the Lord to make you, you know, gracious and patient and like Jesus. But that's one of the reasons why he often introduces affliction into your life so that you will commune with him, so that you will feel your need of him, so that you will come closer to the reality. He's not manufacturing your need. He's exposing your need so that you will turn to him and trust in him and lean on him to be dependent upon him. Dependence is not a word that we like in our culture. And in fact, we often punish dependence in our culture. And somehow we smuggle that into our Christianity. But we have to learn to be a dependent people. Study your deep and extensive need and who God is, and you will grow in prayer. James wants us to be a praying community, but he also wants to be a restorative community, which brings us to our final point, a brief point. The community of faith is a restorative community, and this is in verses 19 through 20. James closes his letter not with the greetings and benediction typical of epistolary endings, but with a summons to action. If James is indeed something of a sermon in letter form, then these last two verses are an appropriate closing call to action. Not only should the readers of James do the words he has written, they should be deeply concerned to see that others do them as well. You see? It's not just about you and Jesus. We say it all the time. There are many things you can do by yourself, but being a Christian is not one of them. The Christian life is meant to be lived in community. It only can be lived faithfully in community. And, and James doesn't want you to just walk away with like, oh, yeah, all right, I got James for me. But you are unconcerned about your, your, your brothers and sisters in the community. No, we need one another. We need one another. Take, take a look at verses 19 through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The strong theme emphasized here is that we are our brother and sister's keeper. Is essentially the message here. 
And when we all see ourselves in this way, then we become a community that is appropriately protective of one another and supportive of one another through the different seasons of life. Because you know what? Every Christian in moments of sanity knows that they need accountability, knows that they need someone checking in on them, knows that they sometimes need somebody to get up in their mix. You know what I'm saying? It's only in our times of insanity when we go off the rails that we reject it and turn from it. But James here is commending to us this, this ministry of retrieval, to keep an eye out for one another, to look out for each other. If I saw you driving toward a cliff, I would do everything in my power to alert you, even if it offended you, to save your life. And that's the way that Christian accountability is to work, that we're willing to risk coming across pushy, nosy. We're willing to risk that because of love. It's all about love. Love for the other is what would induce us to risk the embarrassment and the discomfort of crossing those lines and be like, hey, I think, I think you're really heading in a bad direction here. Let's talk. What's up? What's going on? Checking in, right? Here, James is seeking to implant this as a norm in the Christian community. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that James knew that he was laying a lot on these people in this letter. James knew what he was doing. He was throwing haymakers this whole book, just dropping bombs. He knew that. And so he closes it up with prayer and community because he knows that it's only through prayer and living in community that we will actually be able to rise up into everything he has said we're to be about in this book. The only way we'll become hearers and doers of the word. A people that joins faith and works together in a life of integrity and accountability. Genuine faith is more than a matter of simply acknowledging the right theological concepts. It is right living in accordance with those concepts. It's faith and works. Hearing and doing the word. Throughout this letter, James has essentially said to us, my brother and Lord who is the Messiah, he meant what he said. So, let us look into the mirror of God's word, remembering who we were meant to be as God's image, and let us be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.